If you look at the activity of a lot of data scientists and big companies, I would argue that 80% of their time is spent cleansing and finding and trying to mess around with the data, and 20% of the time is spent actually analysing and drawing conclusions from it. Hello and welcome to the Instec London podcast. This is Matthew Grant, one of the partners at Instec London. Now, I enjoyed all of our podcasts, but this particular episode was fascinating. Graham Elliott is the founder and CEO of Azure Underwriting that he set up in 2016. Uh, now, we're often looking for examples of where the full stack digital insurance might come from at Instec London. And in talking to Graham, it's clear that he had been able to very successfully combine both technology and a deep experience, not just insurance, but in other areas of business, to provide a MGA that is adding value both to their clients, but also all of their partners in the full value chain. I think you'll enjoy this a lot. Graham, thanks for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Now, you've had an interesting career. You started off with a degree in English from Oxford, and then you've been in, I think, marketing, the oil business, you've been, in, you've been in banking, and you've ended up in insurance. So is the conclusion of that, that for anybody out there wondering what career to take, they should really just start insurance, and that's because that's basically the, the best place to, uh, to build your career? So basically, what you've got to do is choose a, choose a career where there's a lot of energy and where the economics are good. Banking was a phenomenal industry for a long time. But um, post the crash and post the meltdown, it really was uh, a less interesting place to be. And uh, the particular job I was in was basically uh, stockbroking, which was unbundled by the regulations, so it became even less interesting. Insurance is phenomenal because it's the mutualization of risk, which means it's spreading it and fragmenting it through society. And as a result of that, um, the players are all fragmented, and um, there's lots of little players in there. and it seems to me to be a natural entrepreneur's landscape. I mean, it really is an amazing playground for anybody with an entrepreneurial bent. And just that last point about being the entrepreneur's playground, you've been fairly vocal, maybe more in private than in public, about some of the challenges you've seen in the insurance industry. So what is it that drove you to start up Azure, having been in a broking role before, and uh, just given some of the challenges that you see out there generally in the insurance space. Well, I, I, I was running an MGA in a broker before. It was great fun. It was really enjoyable. Um, but um, I could see the problem was that we didn't have any control over our technology. And, um, uh, and that meant we didn't really have control over our data. And insurance is a $4.3 trillion industry with a massive data problem. And, uh, and to be a 21st century um, business, you've got to solve that problem. And so uh, the only way was to start from scratch and try and take advantage of modern technology and set up your own business and have control over your own technology. And that meant becoming a technology company as well. And I couldn't see doing that from a legacy player. It's very hard to retrofit that type of culture. So many people, many insurance companies, they try to claim that they are, or some of them try to claim that they are actually data companies or technology companies in insurance. I mean, the reality is they're, they're actually insurance companies, but given that you started off what, three years ago and have got a technology platform and you've got an MGA, how do you, which of those do you tend to put forward when you're defining what you do? Are you an underwriter or are you a technology platform? We're a technology-enabled 
uh, underwriting business is the way I look at us. And um, it's very difficult for people to get their heads around, what are you? Are you a technology company or an insurance company? I don't think that's a 21st century question. I think in the 21st century, there are going to be companies that um, own their technology, control it, and know what they're doing, and right the way through the organization is a tech-enabled business in the cloud. And I think the other companies just won't be around in the end of the 21st century. So I think it's a, a must-do, um, and um, it was the only way I knew of answering that problem. Yeah, so essentially the data and the analytics is a, is a basic requirement to entry into the business. You need to have that if you're going to be a successful underwriter, and then you make the money from the underwriting. Yes, I think that's right. I mean, we, you know, if you look at the activity of a lot of data scientists and big companies, I would argue that 80% of their time is spent cleansing and finding and trying to mess around with the data, and 20% of the time is spent actually analysing and drawing conclusions from it. And that's because the core systems that those businesses sit on weren't built for the age of data. They were built for counting money. And it's not the same thing. And you, you talk about being a, a managing digital agency or an MDA as well as a MGA. Can you just sort of explain what the MDA Yeah, I thought thing? we had to... It, it's a it's a completely cheeky piece of land grab. We, we thought we had to... Uh, we, invent a category because we didn't really fit into anybody's category and when we went around originally trying to fund the business everybody would go what are you tech or insurance you've got to be one or the other and I couldn't see why I had to be so in the end we thought well okay we'll call ourselves what we are and um, and it's aspirational it's a journey for us we we inherited a legacy portfolio and we are in the process of digitalizing that but the new products that we're building and have built are all fully digital. So you are building the the elusive full stack digital insurance company from 100%, start to finish, 100% end to end. So so and it starts before the quote. It starts at the engagement level when you're dealing with um, how do you engage people. If you're in a B two B context, how you set how you engaging your audience of brokers that you're selling through, and we do that through Broker IQ. Um, and all of the data there is on the same platform as all the data about the brokers themselves and the risks and all of the financial data at the back end is there as well. So it's all joined up. And I'll come back to that in a minute because there's a lot of challenges around that that you, you're certainly overcoming some of them. I'm quite interested how you, you deal with some of the other issues of data that's beyond your control. But just with regards to the book you inherited and uh, the partnering with AIG. A uh, couple of questions on that. So first of all, for a company like AIG, that's got its choice of you know, who it can get involved with, can do a lot of things internally. Uh, you know, what was it about Azure that ultimately AIG decided to support you and give you access to their book? I think what they liked was that um, A, I got experience running um, that type of business before. Um, so I had got domain knowledge. And they liked that I got a um, a background, some, some of a background in technology. I chair a technology company. And I think they like the vision that instead of uh, writing premium, um, which the carrier had appetite for, um, your MDA or MGA actually writes client-facing stuff. So, so we're a great transformer from vertical risk appetite into horizontal client needs. And I sold them on the idea that that was what was going to drive um, the intermediary of the future doing this stuff. Um, that, you, that you could build products for clients um, that suited them and that were digitally um, enabled to be, um, to be very personalized. I think technology from the printing press onwards to the PC 
really delivered uh, one to many increasingly quickly. Um, and what cloud does is allows you to deliver one to one at scale. And the metaphor for that is think of your Facebook um, uh, user. There are two point whatever billion users of Facebook. There is one version of the code, and um, and everybody's got my Facebook page. It's configured for you, so everybody's page is personalised to them. And that's the sort of experience I think is going to have to be the expected experience of the future, both. B2B and B2C. So the millennials coming into a legacy business are going to look at the platform running on green screen IBMs and go, this just doesn't do it for me. I don't want to join a company like this. Well, I'll come back to legacy in a moment. But just on the, the AIG book. So this is the high net worth book that you yes. brought over from AIG. So when you talk about vertical versus horizontal, you just, just explain a little bit more what that means in practice. So for, for 300 years, approximately, insurance was written um, for capital. And the metaphor for that is the Lloyd's Building. It's a Templar capital. It's a great place, phenomenal expertise. And the brokers would queue up and they would place risks. But the risks were what the capital had appetite for. And so no one capital can provi- provider can write all of the appetite for all of the clients it, it, it would seek to serve. Um, and so we buy insurance in a fragmented way because of that. And it doesn't seem to me to make any sense. And and the MGA is the perfect transformer vehicle to take pools, it's agnostic as to capital, so it can take pools of capital uh, with different appetites and string those together for a client solution. And that seemed to me to be logical and quite exciting. And if you look at the data models of some of the legacy enterprise software providers, they've recognized an insured object in the data model, they recognized an insured person, but they don't have a client in there necessarily. Well, that is tells you everything about it. It was built for a different era. And now we're in an era where the customer's king and distribution is one out over capital. And uh, we're moving into product now and services. And you can't do those things unless you're really personalized. And you can't do that unless you've got the right vehicle. So it feels like you're starting to answer the question that anybody about insurance at some point asks themselves, which is, am I insured for this particular event and how do I figure out from all my different policies if I'm covered and the moment you do I think personal lines you do collections you do motor so it feels like you're building out a portfolio so at some point potentially one of your clients knows they're going to get coverage across a full range because you're making it solution centric rather than individual products I'd I'd like yeah I'd like to be able to do multi-niche insurance that caters for client needs so so one by one we'll knock off the big things we'll at some point we'll do yacht and then we might look at equine, and um, and so you're building out this portfolio of products, and the client can pick and choose what they want to have, and that and I believe that people will be happy to have that convenience. I'm not quite sure the Grant family qualify for high net worth in the zoo, but certainly at some point we'd be delighted to have an insurance policy where we were confident we were covered for uh, all losses, and not have to figure out what we were covered for, what we weren't covered for, and what we were paying. Uh, three times well contact one of our brokers and i'm sure we'll look after you (laughs) fantastic so let's get back to this legacy one uh this is yeah an issue that a lot of people use as a barrier to growth um you've got some ideas i think about how to extract data from legacy in an efficient way without necessarily having to rebuild the systems is that right in terms of how you access that well, we, we, we so the first thing is it's a lot easier to build new products on new systems because often getting off of legacy is not actually a technology question as much as a reimagining the way that the thing is underwritten. Um, but we, and so we've launched a new product in the UK, but our real uh, 
the real pot of gold is to digitalize legacy. If you've got multiple endpoints because you don't, haven't fixed on a system of record, then it's very difficult to build uh, any toolkit that transforms from one system to another because you don't have, you've got both ends moving around. If you fix one end and say, I absolutely know that's where my endpoint is, then you can genericize your toolkit and begin to build um, tools that can um, do the ETL part of this, and therefore you can have digitalization of portfolios at lower risk. And that is, and and it's not it, 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 the benefit doesn't just accrue to the customer and the broker, the end journey, the end experience. The benefit accrues to the insurer because um, you're taking away a ton of processes, rekeying and mantronics, and the the um, sort of orgy of kind of um, terrible manual labor that goes into all this stuff. Um, and you're stripping costs out, which is what everybody wants to do. And in the end, that leads to lower premiums for the same economic result for the insurer, which leads to a better result for the end insured. So if you can, if you can get after this problem, it's a big problem. There were a couple of uh, interesting acronyms and words in there. So ETL, extract, transform, load. Yes, absolutely. Mantronics, did I hear that? Yes, yeah, it's our word for, it's the Wizard of Oz, basically. It looks like everything's, and there's somebody behind the scenes pulling levers to make it all happen. Um, and, you know, there are lots of insurance businesses where um, um, stuff is put into one system and then somebody in a center somewhere is taking it from one system and, and keying it into another. And that's madness. Well, Mantronics, you uh, you heard it here first. <laughs> um, good. Just one thing you just mentioned in passing I want to pick up on. The, you mentioned the broker there. I, I believe at the moment all of your um, submissions go through a broker rather yes. than going direct. And so what's your view on the future of the broker in the insurance space? Well, I'm a firm believer in the value of, of risk transfer advice and the need for it. You know, beyond the most simple risks you really want to understand what you're getting into. So the broker has an absolute role in this. And we're not trying to disrupt the broker because I think that's not a particularly logical place to start as a small company. You know, we're going we're gonna to disrupt Aon. Well, good luck with that. Um, of course we're not. They're phenomenal companies. They're very well run. So we, we, we view the broker as being very necessary. Do I think the broker's role is going to change? Well, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of places where it has changed, you know, I was a stockbroker and that unbundled, they, they decoupled advice from the execution of that advice um, so that you, you um, so that the fund would only pay for the research itself and the underlying company would not pay, uh, the underlying fund holder would not have to pay for the research. Um, and I think it's happened in IFAs where you've um, got RDR. Um, so there is a chance that, that, that they decouple advice from the, from the execution of the policy. Um, and it's not a percentage anymore, but I mean, it's, that doesn't appear to be any time soon. The role of the broker is absolutely there. They've absolutely embedded the, the importance that they've got in the, in, the, in, the, in the whole risk transfer process. And I'm a firm believer in it. So we're going to work with them, not against them. Good. So you can still walk down Lime Street safely. Well, obviously not wearing this shirt, but yes. <laughs> Good, but and also just to clarify, I mean that is partly a factor of the high net worth business. So you've got complicated needs. It's not it's not like the the areas where in the UK in particular you've got sort of retail brokerage going direct, just because they're fairly homogenous yeah. transactions in place. You've started working with Logical Glue, uh, another sort of organisation. It's sort of been around a few years now, uh, and also I don't know if this is what they're doing or it's happening separately. But interested to learn a bit about how do you achieve your uh, pricing where I believe it's if, if the broker puts in five attributes 
you can give a response back in, in 90 seconds. So logical glue is slightly different from, I work with logical glue is slightly different from the data enrichment that we're doing, but they're, they're, they belong with each other. Behind all of this is my conviction that we're going to go to a world of augmented underwriting. And augmented underwriting is we're great at things as human beings and you still need human beings, but you could be even better if you had a bit of help from the machine. And, and, and in two ways. Firstly, if you enrich the data, um, you have a, a, the chance of delivering the asymmetric user experience that's so necessary for a 21st century product. So if you've got five questions on the happy path for the broker and the end insured, then that's a pretty painless experience to get a quote. And you can do it in 90 seconds versus 40 questions and it's taking you 25 minutes. Um, at the back end, with data enrichment, the carrier, in our case, AIG, gets 66 rating variables. So, so by, by uh, using data enrichment that way, you give a great UX both ends. You satisfy both needs. Logical glue is uh, the bit where you take that augmented data and then you start to have um, the machine watch and help guide you on what, which risks you want and which risks are going to be difficult for you. And you can't, it's not like you're cherry picking, you're just guiding yourself and trying to help yourself avoid some real pitfalls. And so uh, we think there's some really interesting stuff that you can do. And I would hesitate to call it AI. I think it's more explainable machine learning. And even then, it's not actually active machine learning where the machine's correcting itself every five seconds. Um, but you have a model and you train the model and then you run the data um, uh, live data through versus historical data and you work out whether you're likely to win a risk and whether it's likely to claim or not and it doesn't stop you the underwriter from making the decision but it just helps you and there's a lot of people on Wall Street who use quant underlays to help them select stocks because there's just more data out there than you can process as a human being so you have a strong instinct and the machines are saying to you you know what you're right on this one I agree with you or you want to be careful and then it'll tell you why and you might still go ahead and underwrite it and that, that is applicable not just to a high volume class of business. I think that augmented underwriting is going to be an absolutely common thing in, in 10 years' time. It, it, everybody will be using it. Yeah, I mean, an interesting theme seems to be moving on um, from the underwriter no longer has a role to the underwriter can do more, more efficiently and, and more accurately, but it still needs to be there for those referrals or, yeah. or tricky, tricky edge cases. So, so, do you, so does that mean that you have underwriters here for certain situations that might get flagged up by the tool in the background where you actually have to have some human intervention, so not everything is going to get a decision? Yeah, yeah, no, you, you never, I mean, I mean because, because we don't fit into buckets easily, our goal on the higher volume products are to have 80% go through on a happy path. We're not there yet, but... 80% on the happy path and 20% have to be touched. The 20% that have to be touched, what you want to look at is, do I want to discount this risk anymore or do I not? And, and that's really helpful because, because you know, otherwise you've got no basis for knowing other than what the broker's telling you. And, and you, of course you've got to trade and you've got to be there, but you, you know, if you're going to have a quote to bind ratio of 20%, make sure you've got the right 20%. And the distribution of claims through a claim series is not linear um, by value. So, so the bottom 5% of claims will be 40% of your value. And so if you can avoid one really bad claim because the machine says, hold on a minute, do you know this is quite difficult here? And if you can avoid one of those, you can make a big difference to your book and you haven't 
screwed up your ability to trade with brokers. You've just helped yourself select a risk a bit better. Yeah, and that makes complete sense. So, so with the pre-fill, and it, and it, I can see in the next year or two, there's going to be a, a kind of race to see who can come up with the most, uh, I don't know if it's going to be the fastest, because at some point that doesn't really become relevant, but yeah, then the most uh, effective way of doing those pre-fills or, you know, or, or rating on the basis of five questions um, can you talk a bit about what you're using as a data in the background that you, you augment? I think data is going to commoditize more and more and the data companies will merge and, and you'll get bigger and bigger data sets. One of the problems for a, a niche business is you don't have breadth, horizontal breadth of data. So you don't have big data horizontally. And so therefore what you want to get is big data vertically on each risk. We have access to 27 million mortgage surveys, so we have property-specific data. Uh, we're looking up floods, subs, sanctions, everything else. And then we've got a lot of modelling going on in the background around confidence scores on how many bedrooms it's got, how many, what the rebuild value is, uh, what the square meterage is. And we're always looking for ways to improve it. Well, when we back-tested the manually-entered, manually-given data that we got, we found out that quite a lot of it was inaccurate. A decent percentage was not right. Um, the machine is just less wrong than the human. We do place a higher burden on the human on the machine than we do on the human. So everybody goes, well, you move from 60% accuracy to 80%. That's terrible. What about the 20%? Well, what about the 40% that the humans are getting wrong? So we've got this kind of, you know, journey. And the data is not out of the box. And if you try and use it out of the box, it's not plug and play. So you have to spend a long time testing it and you have to spend, we've spent a lot of time on rebuild values and we've gone street by street sometimes in London. So not even postcode, not even second half of postcode, street level rebuild values. So it becomes highly proprietary to the company and that's pretty cool. Yeah, well you picked up on a hot topic of mine actually, which is rebuild values, uh, partly because you know, in the US if somebody undervalues their building, they get penalised when it comes to insurance. The UK, I don't think, is, is doing that or he's not doing it as much. But, but, it, but now people tend to be advised to use the ABI RIC score and having gone through a renewal myself and looked at the rebuild cost and knowing a little bit about what you know, these things really cost, it seemed like it was way off in terms of yeah. these estimates. So, yeah, really intrigued about that. that can you sort of talk a little bit about how you're, you take go street by street? You know, what does that actually mean in, in practice? Well, we have, our own, we have our own surveyor here who's an expert on this stuff, and he surveys high net worth houses. So we look at, we're just very concerned that, you know, if you um, have a, a property in Battersea in the same square meterage in Knightsbridge, the rebuild value is going to be different. And it, ju it just is. And what is that number? And I don't think that the available official data is fit for purpose on that, or it's a starting point, but it doesn't get you there. So we've had to go through manually and work it out. Once you've done it, it's pretty cool. And then, and then the other the other data source we get to help us is uh, we were worried about if you had a mortgage survey ten years ago, but somebody's rebuilt their home or done a big extension, how do you pick that up? So we're taking planning data as well. And then what we started to do was contact the brokers and say. Um, did you know the following properties of yours have had um, planning permission granted? And by the way, here's our course of construction insurance if you should need it. So you can start to turn this data into a demand generation uh, uh, motion rather than just as a sort of passive source of underwriting. That's quite interesting. Yeah, I mean, and also actually what's interesting as a you know, relatively new company, 
that you you feel you can justify the cost because it seems like there's not a there's not a shortcut to this. You, you in a sense you need to be as good as one of the big general insurers out there. Will be I guess you're looking at a slightly smaller section of the market if you're focusing on high net worth. But it's interesting that you've been able to presumably do this in a commercial way so that you can get the data that you need and still you leave enough profit on the under, on the underwriting premium. Uh, with the cost of the data coming in yeah i mean i mean we're not subject to a quarterly earnings report um as a as a driver and so we do get to be able to invest um but we wouldn't do it if it wasn't economically sensible and the other reason why we can do it is because we've got the core system and all the data in one place sometimes the problem is going to be you're going to get overloaded with big data coming in and your core system can't cope with the big data that's coming in so you can't actually use the data coming in and you haven't got the underwriting to be able to cope with that we're able to innovate carefully we're not chucking money at it but we're we're really thinking about what we do and we're trying to keep ahead all the time of you know where we think the world's going to go to and try to invest for that because that's the only sensible thing you can do and just one more theme around the data one uh, the water leakage seems to be coming more and more of a Topic. I thought it's been out there for a while. Uh, you're doing you're doing some work around smart homes. You've got a partnership, I think, with Grow in terms of their water detection device. I think it's also a shut off valve. Is is that right? Yeah, I I, I um, it's interesting that because uh, and it is just a pilot to work out um, whether we can help it. The, the the trouble is when you think about this through the lens of the end customer and the user experience, which is our number one obsession. Um, it becomes a bit difficult, this, because it's a bit like capital rights, what it's got appetite for. We'd all love every home to have a great water leak detector and a shut-off valve because then it would lower the lower water damage. The trouble is, getting all that fitted is actually not trivial. You've got to have somebody at home, you need a plumber, then the plumber arrives and they realise they need a plug to be installed near where the shut-off valve's got to go and there isn't one, so you need an electrician. Then you need to have your Wi-Fi, and then you realise the Wi-Fi signal doesn't go to the scullery or wherever it is that you have to go to. And so you then need a Wi-Fi expert comes in and not everything works first time. And by the time you got through that and then the water leak detector goes off on your wife's phone at 3 o'clock in the morning, you have a failed marriage on your hands. So, you, you know, I, 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 we're going to try all this stuff. I think there's a lot more... There's a lot of hype around it, um, and we're just trying to work out what the right point is and what's in it for the end customer. How do you persuade somebody who's never had a water leak that it's a good idea? Until you've had one, in which case you think this is the worst thing that could ever have happened. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's just so true of so much in insurance. With a, you know, my own background in, in catastrophe risk, you know, people, if hurricanes don't happen in the last 12 months, they, they just don't happen. And I think that's very similar with water and fire. Interesting, what's happening in the US just now is the companies doing this are targeting the new build and so what's happening is actually for the new construction they're building in valves and presumably the power socket as well and making it near the wi-fi <laughs> um so that if somebody chooses to put a put a water shutoff valve in there they just they just basically fit it directly into the to the pipe and actually not only that apparently the builders are now using this as part of their own testing when they've created the building and they want to make sure there's no leakage they put their own valve in there and i think that's you know particularly with all the 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 funny plumbing in the UK that we have, yeah, that's probably going to be one of the the access points to, to get in there for the new it, build. It could be for new build, but if you're insuring Amberley Castle, it's pretty hard to kind of um, <laughs> do that. 
Um, another I just want to touch on was interconnectivity generally. And as a you know, you've built now this full stack digital insurance company, you had the I guess the ability to start from scratch. As you looked out there and looked at the components you could use to build the company, how encouraged are you, or maybe not, by the ability for these different components to link together, either just through a, a basic API, but you know, at a more, maybe at a more straightforward level where you can literally get to a plug and play of taking the data or all the analytics and plug well, them into? Well, I have a sort of theory that if, if any sentence you form around this subject has the words data lake somewhere in it, then you, you're not going to, it's going to be very difficult. And you want to be in an ecosystem. And we don't want to build anything that's already been built. So if there's a great CRM platform out there, don't build your own. If there's a great CMS platform out there, don't build your own. Just, you know, just take what's out there as best in class. And it seems to me that there's a lot of bespoke software and on older stacks. And that is neither built for connectivity, nor is it particularly dare I say it, nor does anybody particularly want it because what you want is to keep people in the in your own world and not allow them to stray outside of it. And it's Hotel California time. And that's the thing you've got to avoid. And if you're in an ecosystem, it's much better if you're running native, but if you're not running native, you build a you know API in, it's great. Um, and I think it's gonna get increasingly difficult to do this stuff because in the end, what we're going to go to is real-time data. And you can't go real-time in a batch-processed world and, and it, you know, in a world where there's Mantronics and all the rest of it. So you have to have interconnectivity. Then you have to look at your core system and say, were they built for interconnectivity? Some of them are great at counting the money, but you ask them to, um, to throw data in and out and then just not built that way. They're not architected that way. And I think it's and I think it's very hard to do it. And then and then you look at it, and you say how much of what I've got is built on code that I've got to maintain versus how much is it I've configured. So so a good example would be uh, why do you need to build your own general ledger? There are perfectly good global examples of general ledgers out there that you should be able to connect to. And if you can find one that's in the ecosystem where the rest of your stuff is, so it's built to connect anyway, all the better. It just gives you a seamless real-time experience and if you don't get that the frictional costs are horrendous around that so and how do you find the broker platforms then being able to connect into your own technology well we haven't yet gone there because we're still building we we would love to connect but we but because we believe the product i.e., this digital customer focused um, what are your needs we're going to try and cope with them and give it all to you in a, in a really easy way if you put that through a broker platform to the end customer, you crush the user experience to whatever the, the user experience is in the broker platform. And that's, I, I'm, I'm not, that's not what we want to build. I would love to connect downstream to some of the big broker platforms where the broker keys into what we're doing, gets what they need, and they don't have to key it into their own system. That would be really cool. Um, but, and, and that's more or less difficult. I mean, literally, sometimes it's almost impossible and sometimes it's easier. But, but that would be really cool. So the way it works today is the broker would log into the Azure system and put, yeah. put the limited data they need to get the quote and then yeah. you do it from that, okay. And any any uh, technology companies you see out there that you kind of rate highly for their ability to both be interconnecting and also actually valuable data and analytics when you've made the connection? There's Consirus doing some really smart stuff with um, data. 
there are some really interesting there's some good good uh, claims companies out there I think doing some interesting stuff there some companies talk about the API but I'm not quite sure how easy it is to actually connect up um, uh, so yeah there's lots of good companies there's also many many more that are I think going to you know struggle in the new world because they've got legacy platforms and legacy business models that don't suit this new SaaS type model um, I think if you get the right um, understanding at the top any company can do this stuff but you have to have a CEO that, that, that understands what cloud computing is and if the CEO doesn't understand cloud computing and can't um, articulate it how are you ever going to make a decision that's the right decision around this because they don't they've got to engage with it so well, listen, this has been really helpful I guess just before we wrap it up um, you've recently you know, very delighted to have you on board as a, another corporate member of Instead London just kind of interested what it was about what we're doing that you, for you and Charlie and the others you made the decision to support us if you sit back and watch what goes on and you just listen to the buzz we've got a lot of young people in our company we're 70 people now and um, it's a very mixed very diverse group of people um, lots of energy in there, lots of curious people. And then three or four people come up and say, I've been to one of their events, it was fantastic. And that makes you sit up and take notice. So then you think, okay, we maybe ought to be engaging with this and, and talking to it. And, and I think um, you guys are very early on the scene on this and, and you've got a very good following, lots of energy. And I think, um, you know, I listened to Robin's speech at the Insider Tech Conference recently and I thought he nailed it and I thought it was brilliant so you know why wouldn't you want to be associated with people you think are on the same page and are, are kind of articulating some of the things that we can see and then you know it's really interesting to be around that and to be listening to it and hearing what other people have got to say because we have not got all the answers or probably hardly any of the answers but there's lots of people out there who know lots more than we do and we can listen to them and learn from them. Finally before we wrap up uh, what would be your advice to anybody out there who is either looking at entering the insurance world or looking at uh, doing their own startup, you know, from your own lessons? Okay, so the so first thing is, in insurance, I would advise you not to use the language of we're going to disrupt everybody. I think it's there are really well-capitalized companies, um, and I think you should be partnering with them and working with them. Second thing is, find a pain point. Find a pain point that's worth solving and and that you know about, that you understand. Um, because that's important. The third thing is to do something in insurance, in the insure tech world, you really have to understand the regulated side of the business and the technology side of the business. If you only understand one side, you're going to miss it. So you have to marry the two. And I can tell you that is culturally oil and water. It is really difficult to do. And so um, it's not easy to do it. If you can make it work, I think there's a huge number of prizes out there for the people that can make this stuff work and there's some phenomenal companies doing some really interesting things risk is doing some great stuff there's some really smart people out there and you can emulate what they're doing but i think the ones that are going to be successful combine both the regulated bit and the technology bit and i think if you don't get those two elements it's going to be very hard Great. Well, you're certainly a great uh, poster child. Might be not the right word, but you know, sort of role model. <laughs> poster <out> granddad. <laughs> in uh, you know how to, how to get out in the industry um, and actually make an impact, and and you know really balance that sort of making a difference, but actually sort of as you say, not not trying to claim to disrupt the industry, but work with the existing organisations that are out there and complement what they're doing rather than necessarily 
um, being too disruptive, but at the same time, don't get too you know, caught up in the old ways and get too complacent. So, Graham, it's been tremendous. I'll let you get back to all the many things you've got going on, but many thanks. Thank you very much indeed. It's been fun. After that interview, Graham also gave me a chance to sit in on some of the testing they were doing with a new product they're building. So I actually had an opportunity to get hands-on and look and see how the tools they're building are going to work in practice. Really fascinating. You can learn more about Azure Underwriting from their website. We'll also have their details on the notes for this episode. And as a corporate member of Instec London, we'll be getting uh, Azure up on stage in the very near future at one of our events. Uh, If you'd like to learn more about what it involves becoming a corporate member and how you can get involved in Instec London or just find out our events, both past and future, you can find us at www.instec.london and we recommend you do sign up for our newsletter if you're not already doing so to make sure you hear about our events and get a chance to register for those early because they are booking out now very quickly. 